And this is where we begin our study in chapter 1, verse 1. Now, if you want a, a grasp on what the book of James is, let me give you two words. Visible faith. That's what he talks about. Faith that is seen. Faith that is worked out. Faith that is true. And you can tell it's true because it's being walked out. You can actually see it. So, visible faith. The key verse, as, as I go through this book, as I look at this book, is actually found in James chapter 2, verse 8. If you're looking for a key verse, this would be it as we go through the epistle. It declares this in James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. Visible faith. Act out on the things that you want. So as you look to this, it simply opens up James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James. Who is this James? Well, there are some people who say, well, maybe it's James and John. I, I disagree with that um, simply because James, he dies early in the book of Acts. Herod wipes them out. I do believe that this James is the brother of Jesus. There's a point where we see in um, the, the book of Matthew, I want to read just a couple of verses to you. Just jot it down if you're a note taker. If not, just memorize them as I go through them. But in Matthew 13, verse 55, um, it opens up immediately where it said, it came to pass when Jesus, um, or 55, and they said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Josies, Simon, and Judas, and of course his sisters, are they, were they not all with us? So we see that he did have a brother, James. Now this brother, James, eventually, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, um, it makes this declaration where after Jesus had risen, he was seen by, by Cephas in the 12, it says in verse 5, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 15. And then it says this when you get to verse 7, and after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. So he wasn't seen by James the Apostle, he was seen by James, his brother, and then he was seen by all of the Apostles. There's a point I want to share with you found in the book of Acts, beginning in Acts. I want to start in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, the reason why I want to look to this is because it's a real key to really what's going on in the early church. And sometimes we just have a tendency of just kind of looking over it really briefly, really quickly, and we don't really grasp fully what's going on. But in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, it makes this statement. Back it up. James, Acts 1, 14 is what I'm looking for. Then these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplications with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. 
It's interesting that as James comes and he's part of this early church that um, he's there in the upper room. He's there with the, receiving the Holy Spirit. And I think that's going to be key as we go through it because we make a note as we continue in the book of Acts chapter 15. I want to start reading in verse 13 and so that you can kind of grasp what's going on in Acts 15, 13. And after they had become silent, this is when Paul and Barnabas come to the church in Jerusalem, James answered, saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the very first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And so we see here how James is part of that um, early church. It makes a statement there um, that as it goes on in verse 23 of Acts chapter 15, they wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Now, why do I want to read that? Well, it's interesting because if we take a look here at verse 1 of James chapter 1, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. There's only two times in Scripture that this term greetings is used as a letter of greetings. It's here in the book of James, and it's there in the book of Acts chapter 15. And so we're understanding a little bit of who this man James is. I want to share with you just a couple more verses found in the book of Galatians. The first is found in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, where Paul said, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In Galatians 2, 9, he makes this statement. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, in other words, pillars of the church, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me Barnabas in the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So they would go to the Jews. They sent Paul and Barnabas to the Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, we see here where Peter makes this, where Paul talks about Peter. says, for before certain men came from James, these are people who were taught by James, he, that would be Peter, would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So James had disciples. He had power within the church. And I do believe that this is the James. Now, what's interesting is James doesn't call himself James, the leader of the church of Jerusalem. He just doesn't do it. He doesn't say James, the actual brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'll tell you what, of all the people who knew Jesus, think about this for a second. If, this is if, if you have a sibling and you grew up with that sibling, how well do you know that sibling and how well does that sibling know you? I mean, there, there are things about my brothers that I know about them and they know about me. And I'll be honest that you guys have no idea. And if you did have an idea, you would probably be going to another church. Because you, like my brothers, would be thinking there is no way that God has enough grace to save you and to use you as part of his ministry in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Think about that. They 
ate meals together. They hung out together. They worked together. They talked together. They laughed together. I mean, they, he, they know each other. And James doesn't say, I, I know him. I, I hung out with him for years. The Lord Jesus met me after he was risen. I then evangelized with my other brothers and, and sisters, and we all were part of the early church there. I became a pillar within the church. He doesn't say that. He simply declares this, James, a bondservant of God, a doulos, an underrower. It's one who willingly says, I'm going to give you my life. In other words, the bondservant in the Old Testament, the one who says, I love my master, I don't want to leave him. He goes and he gets a, a, his, a, all shoved through his ear, gets an earring put in. He says, I love my master, I don't want to leave him. He calls a bondservant. So he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing that growing up, I don't know what he thought about his brother. You know, we all have that older brother complex. James really had an older brother complex. Like, my parents think my brother is perfect. <laughs> they were right. Think about that. I mean, if you have an older brother and he's Jesus, he's perfect. But now he doesn't see him as perfect. He doesn't see him as old. He says, he's God. I can now look back and I can see this. He was God. And he met me after his resurrection. He revealed he's God. And so James calls himself not a pillar of the church, not a leader of the church, not the brother of Jesus. He simply says, I'm a bondservant. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a willing servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he writes his epistle to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. To the 12 tribes that are scattered. Now keep in mind that the tribes had begun to be scattered when Assyria went and took the northern tribes. They began to be scattered more when Babylon came and took the southern tribes, scattered more when Rome came and, and scattered them. But what he does is this. He says to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. The term scattered is, is unique in the Greek. It means to cause to sow seed. So what James does is he refers to the, the Jews who are, are now scattered. He puts a point like this. He says, God is basically sowing you. God is the one who's, who's just throwing you out there so that you can grow where he plants you and that you can bear fruit. See, a lot of times when we're scattered and we're put into places like, I hate this place. I don't want to be here. I, I, send me somewhere else. And God says, no, I, I scattered you. I planted you. I sowed you here for a reason. Bear fruit, bring glory to me. And this is what he begins to do is he begins to try to reach out to the 12 tribes, to the Jews who are now scattered. And after he opens up this term, greetings, which, of course, we, we realize we found in Acts chapter 15, the only two places it's used, he then begins to deal with this epistle. Now, within the first chapter, there are three sections within this first chapter. The first section in verses 2 through 12 is going to be 
outward trials. What happens when you get through outward trials? Once you get to verses 13 through 18, you deal with inward trials. So trials that are on the outward, trials that are on the inward, and then in verses 19 through 27, victory over trials. So these are the three sections. You have outward trials, inward trials, and he says, and here are, is how you have the victory over both of them, both outward and inward. And so he initially says, you guys that are scattered understand that God has sown you in this place. God has placed you. He was the sower. He sowed the seed. He's put you here for a reason. So as you go through this trial, realize what God is trying to do through you and in you. And if you realize when God says, wow, why did you put me here in this state? Why did you put me here in this city? Why did you put me in this church? Why did you put me in this job? Why did you put me in this family? And God says, I sowed you with my perfect, infinite divine knowledge. I put you in the family that I needed you to be in. Put you in the job that I needed you to be in. I put you with the spouse that I needed you to be with, the friends that I needed you to be with. I put you in the church that I needed you to be with. God is sowing these things. And so after he says greetings to all these that are scattered abroad, he makes this statement in verse 2. He says, my brethren. In other words, kinmen, my family. Count it all joy. At this point, everybody would have just closed the book. <laughs> like, okay, great. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So at this point, you think, James, you have no idea what I'm going through. I'm just going to close the book, close the epistle, walk away, I don't need your greetings because you don't understand because I'm scattered here. I'm in this place. He says, no, no, you don't understand. You're in that place because of God. And so he says, count it all joy. Now, if you're, you've been around our teaching for a while, every so often we deal with what's known as tenses within the verbs within the Greek. In other words, when we go through the book of Matthew, and he says, knock, and, and it shall be open, seek, and you shall find. And we've noted how that term is in the Greek. It's, it's called the present perfect tense. It's an imperative. What it means is to knock and keep knocking, presently perfect. doesn't mean you knock and then you're done. It's like knock, 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 presently perfect. You're just always, always, always knocking. Always, always, always seeking. Always, always, always asking. So what that happens is within that, it's, it's an imperative in a sense, but it's the present perfect tense. Now I want to share with you that when it comes to verses 2 through 6, there are four present perfect tenses. In other words, you don't just do this once, you always do it. And the first one is found in verse 2 where he says, My brethren, count it all joy. Believe it or not, that's a present perfect tense. 
It's an imperative. It means you just constantly, constantly, constantly count it joy. When you fall into various trials. Now, I want to go to the end of the verse for just a second so that you can kind of grasp on what's going on, but he calls it various trials. In other words, there's not going to be just one, and there's not going to be just one kind. There's multiple kinds and multiple trials. So as you go through a trial, it's not, okay, I can count it joy in this trial, but I won't count it joy in that trial. There are certain trials I'll count it joy and other ones that I can negate. No, he says you count it all joy when you go through these various trials. Now, I do want you to understand that he does say, my brethren, count it all joy. He doesn't say feel joy. There's a difference. Now, if I stood up here and I said, you need to feel joy as you go through various trials, then what you should do is just leave the church. Don't, you don't have to feel joy, but you have to count it joy. The word count it is uh, kind of like a mathematical term. It deals with when you tally something up, when you add it all up. In other words, you, you reckon something to be so. So it's sort of like an accounting. When you have a line, one plus two plus three, and you add it all up, you realize, okay, then I have six. So it's an accounting term. So when you get to the very end of all of it, you tally this up to a truth. And he says, when you go through all the various trials, count it, tally it to an explanation that should bring you joy. That's amazing to me that if I'm going through a trial that James says there's an explanation that I need to constantly, every time I'm going through the trial, every moment I'm going through the trial, I need to come to the reckoning, the bottom line of this trial, is to realize that there's a reason in this trial that I can see is joy. And that's why he uses this present perfect tense within the Greek. Count it all joy. Count, count now, now, and now, and now. Count it joy. Don't feel it joy, but reckon at the end of it that there's something that is going to be a thing that will cause you not happiness, but an inward gratitude, an inward pleasure, if you will. Not, not happy, not, not laughing hysterically, but an inward pleasure. And he says, okay, I want you to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, the interesting thing is that, you know, some of us run into trials. Some of us fall into trials. And he says, these are the ones that are not of your making. These are the ones that because you are in a sinful world. Now, when we get over the verse 13, he's going to say, these are the ones because you're in a sinful nature. You have a sin nature in you, so there's an inward trial. But outwardly, he says, these are the things that you're not trying to go into, they just simply happen to you. So he says, my brother, encounter all joy when you fall into various trials. So the, the present perfect is count it all joy. And then the second present perfect is knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. 
So first is you have to count it and then know something that's going on with this trial. The, the knowing something is what's going to be giving you joy. And it says knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. The testing of your faith produces patience. The term patience is kind of a bad translation. It's not bad, horrible. But I think a, a better translation would be that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The, the, the constant trials of your faith that you're walking through produces an endurance and then he goes on saying knowing the testing of your faith produces patience but patience but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect complete and lacking nothing which is of course but let patience have its perfect work is that third thing of having this present perfect tense let patience allow it, constantly allow this patience, this endurance that you're going through, where it says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work. And in other words, let patience have its maturing work. So let me try to break it down to you. My brethren, go to the bottom line, reason everything through, and realize that there's something that you can take joy in when it comes to the trials. Because what the trials will do is the trials will allow you to gain endurance, strengthening, that eventually what's going to happen is there's going to be a maturing work that happens. In other words, allow the enduring process to mature you. So put it this way. When you're letting this patience, verse 4, have its perfect work, while you're allowing this enduring to have it manifest what it needs to do, it's going to strengthen you. When I was in the Marine Corps, one of the things that they chose to do is they chose to never let us walk alone. We always had a buddy with us. The buddy was usually always a rifle, but a lot of times my buddy was a pack. They would put a pack on your back. And I don't know why, you were just walking around the mountains, but they wanted you to stuff your pack with enough items that the weight within that pack, and they would weigh it before you would go out, be right around 80 pounds. And then we get to walk up and down mountains. What would that do? What would that weighing, what would that endurance do as you would continue in 26 miles? I'll tell you what it would do. It'll strengthen you. It'll strengthen you. If you want to have a six-pack in your abs you got to do a lot of sit-ups. Do a lot of sit-ups along with good diet. You're going to have just this rip. If you want to have a keg, then don't do any. But it's interesting to see that if, if you want to be strengthening something, you do it over and over and over. If you want big biceps, you just work on these curls. You just start lifting weights, and, and it's going to grow. 
And I think it's interesting that this is what happens that we see here. Count it all joy. Reckon to the end of the tally that when you are going through these various multi, multi-faceted trials, many trials of different kinds, know verse 13 constantly grasp, know this now and know this now and know it as you're going through the trial. Know it before you're going through the trial. Know it after you go through the trial. It's this present perfect tense of knowing. Constantly have it in your mind that what this testing is, is it's producing in me an endurance. In other words, it's strengthening me, causing me to be mature in my walk. I'm growing stronger in my Christian walk. Because I'm going through these trials, and as I go through the trials in the way that verses 19 through 27 open up how to have victory over these trials, then what I'm doing is this. I'm growing and I'm maturing as a Christian. Now think about this as a second. If you're growing and maturing as a Christian, do you think that that's something that when the trial comes and you tally it to the bottom and say, you know what, that's not bad. I'm okay growing up and maturing as a Christian. I'm okay becoming a stronger Christian. I'm okay with that because this is what this trial is doing. So if you're constantly tallying this up to count it as something that you can say, I can find pleasure in this. I can find some spiritual joy in this, that I'm maturing as a Christian. I'm maturing as one who's a child of God because as I'm going through this trial, I'm gaining this endurance and that endurance, verse four, but the patience, endurance, let it have its perfect work. Allow the exercise that is enduring the trials to have its result in you spiritually. Let it mature you. Let it strengthen you. And, and this is why he says, let patience. In other words, here this, this next term that we see is by, by letting the patience. Um, it's this, this next present perfect tense. Let it and let it and let it and let it. Just constantly allow these trials to do what God needs to do. Why? Because God has sown you in this place. And God has put you in this place knowing this trial was going to come, that you were going to follow, but he knows what it is going to do and it can mature you. It can have a benefit. And then he makes this statement just in case you're thinking, well, I don't fully agree with you on this, Lowell. I think maybe that you're, you're out of place on this. Well, God would then say in verse 5 through James, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So then he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask. Again, that is the fourth imperative, the fourth, fourth present perfect tense within the Greek. The first is count it all joy. The second is knowing that the testing produces patience. And uh, the third is let patience have its perfect work. And then if you lack wisdom, ask of God. So you constantly, if you ever have doubts to what God is doing, ask him, God, 
Are you strengthening me? God, are you growing me as a Christian? God, are you teaching me something about you and your glory and of your grace? What are you doing? And it says, let him ask of God. And he says this, God gives liberally and without reproach. Now, what does it mean God gives liberally and without reproach and it will be given to him? God says, I want you to come and ask and ask and ask and ask and ask and ask. And I'm not going to be upset when you ask me again. How many times have you gone through a trial? God has given you a word to say this trial is to draw you closer to me. You go, okay, Lord, it's good. Then you wake up this next morning and go, why am I going through this trial? And you ask God again. And then he gives you that same answer. Oh, yeah, good, good, good. And then that afternoon, you ask them the same question. God, why am I going through this trial? How many times do we do that? We, we, we ask God, he gives us an answer, and then we kind of ask him again. Do you want to confirm it? And God says, you can ask as many times as you want. And I'll always give you the same answer. Ultimately, it's going to be for my glory. But eternally, it's for your good. I'm using this to grow you. I'm using this to mature you. I'm using this to show you where you're at. And so we see here this beautiful thing where all of a sudden he says, if any of you ask wisdom, just ask of God. Just ask of God. If you ask him, he's going to grant you the wisdom that you need. A couple of passages I want you to be aware of. First is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 3. Then I'm going to read Daniel 10, verse 12. But in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 3, Daniel makes this statement, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes, and I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. Daniel begins to seek the Lord. And then in Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, the, the angel comes and he makes this statement. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come because of your words. You can ask of God, and he's, he's already saying, I'm going to give you a word, I'm going to give you a word. Now keep in mind that this angel was held up. Spiritually, there was a battle going on, but Daniel continued to pray, continued to pray, continued to pray. And if you ask, God is going to give you wisdom. God is going to give you insight. However, what happens if you don't ask? If you don't ask, then you need this passage to kind of jot down. In Joshua chapter 9, you guys know this passage that I just quoted, Joshua 9, about the Gibeonites. I want to read verses 14 to 16, but it makes this statement. Joshua 9, 14, then the men of Israel took some of the provisions but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt with them. They should have wiped them out, but they said, oh, we came from such a far distance. And as they looked at what they saw, the provisions, they didn't ask God, God, is this true? What should we do? But I think it's important as we look to what James begins to teach us, what James wants to show us. If you lack wisdom, ask of God. And he will give to you liberally 
and without reproach. In other words, there's never going to be a time he's going to say, would you stop asking? Would you please stop asking? As parents, when our children learn that crazy word and understand what it means, why? Why? Why is this? You give me that. Why? 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 Just stop asking why. God doesn't say that. God is an incredible father. So he says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask. This constant asking, 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 present perfect tense. Ask of God who gives to all liberally. He's going to show you a couple of things. One, it's for his glory ultimately. Trust that as you go through the word, as you go into prayer. And then eventually he's going to use it for your good. All things work together for good. We, we know it. We, we declare it. We read it. We, we get cards that declare that. But the good that it comes may not be what we recognize or what we want because we feel we're in a location that's not good. But James tells us you were scattered there. You were sown here so that when this trial came, that you would gain endurance, strengthening, and in that strengthening, you would become stronger as a Christian. You'd be more mature. And if you doubt God, ask him, God, is this what you're doing? And say, yes, absolutely, this is what I'm doing. Read the book of James. It'll help you out. And then read it again and read it again. And this is what he does. He gives to anyone who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives all to all liberally and without reproach and it'll be given to him this is what god will do and so in verse four but let him ask this is that present perfect let him ask constantly be asking 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 but now he does something different let him ask in faith let him ask believing when you ask believe that god is going to give you an answer when you ask, believe that, that, that God is going to show you his heart through this. And so he makes this statement, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. When you ask of God, and all of a sudden God gives you an answer, and then you begin to doubt his answer. What happens is you have two minds. God, I want to I hear from you, but now I'm going to believe my own press. I'm going to believe someone else. I'm going to believe your word, and I'm going to believe my own press. And he says, be careful that you do that without doubting. When God gives you a word, anchor into that word. Because through anchoring into that word, we're going to see in verses 19 through 27, that's the key to overcoming a trial. Is anchor yourself in that word. And so we see here that, that that is what God wants us to do. So when he gives you that word, don't doubt. He who doubts is like the wave of the sea. You're like all over the place. Rather than being anchored in on his word, let not that man, the man who doubts in verse 6, let not that man, verse 7, suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. If God's giving you an answer and you want another answer, then what are you going to do? God's not going to give you another answer. God's already told you. And then you're wanting another answer. Well, you're not going to get a second answer when God's already told you what it is. And I think that's what begins to happen. We want God to change his mind. We want God to give a different reason. He's already given us the reason. The problem is we don't want to receive that reason. We want a better reason, 
I don't want to have to go through this trial because you're trying to strengthen me to be a more mature Christian. Why do I have to go through this trial? Can't there be another reason? I want to grow you up. It's always his heart. And so he makes that statement. Let not that man suppose he's going to receive anything from the Lord. He says a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. There's another passage you should be aware of found in James chapter 4, verse 8. It says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The term double-minded here is a term that is only, only found in the entire Bible in the book of James. And he uses it twice. Scholars have said it's not even used in traditional Greek literature. It's only here. James has simply made up a word. Like, Lowell, you do that all the time when you're teaching, don't you? You just make up words like, I think that's what it's supposed to say. think that's what it's supposed to mean. He uses this word double-minded. The term literally means double-souled. You have two souls. You're, 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 you're mixing them. You're not one man. And so if, if you're believing God and then believing you're pressed, if you're believing God and believing something, it says you're, you're split. He's a double-minded man and you're unstable. You're not secure. You're not solid. And then he makes this statement because what was happening was this. The reason the tribes were scattered is because of persecution. And through the persecution, they were losing everything. They were absolutely losing everything. They were being chased out of their homes. Other people were occupying it. As persecution was coming to these Jews who were receiving Jesus as Savior, you know, we've talked about it before, how all of a sudden these Jews who are persecuted, they now have to flee. And they don't have anything of what they used to have. As we went through the book of Hebrews, we kind of worked out those details. And then we see here that what happens is James is saying, don't worry about losing everything. Because notice what he says here. In verse 9, he says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. When you have nothing, you're going to get stuff in heaven. But don't worry to all the other ones. But the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat, than it withers the grass, it flowers fails, and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man will also fade away in his pursuits. In other words, if you have a lot, you can't take it with you. And if you don't have anything, keep in mind that God's going to give you his inheritance. And if you have a lot, keep in mind, you can't take anything with you, but God is going to give you his inheritance. So what does it mean? When we get to heaven, it's all equal. We don't have to worry about that. We all have the inheritance that God has set up for us. These are the blessings that we have. And so he's letting these brethren who are scattered, who were sown by the great sower God, who is planting them as seeds. He says, don't worry about if you left everything and you have nothing. And don't worry about those who now claim your stuff. Because eventually the key is get to heaven and we all have this inheritance. That's why he said, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. If you have nothing here, you're going to inherit in heaven. And if you got stuff here, as a rich man, he says, humiliation, you can't take that with you. Because as the flower fades, it's all going to go. You're going to die. And the only thing you're going to have is what? The inheritance that God sets up for you in heaven. And it's exactly what you need there. 
And so we see here that as James begins to talk about, don't worry about the, the status that you're leaving, the status that you're in, he then makes a statement in verse 12, blessed is the man, oh how happy is the man who endures temptation. Now that term temptation is the exact same word that is found in verse 2, where he says, count all joy when you fall into various trials. The word should better be translated trials, but he says, blessed is the man who endures trials or the temptation. It can mean both. For when he has been approved. So in other words, that, that when you endure temptations, it doesn't say, oh, how happy is the man who escapes temptations. And I think I would rather have him write that. Oh, blessed is the man who escapes trials. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say you're going to be happy when you escape it. Why? Because it's like doing no exercise. You just become this flabby Christian. You don't have this visible faith, and you're not walking out any of this faith, and you just become this fattened sheep that's just ready for the slaughter. And I think it's important. I mean, be careful that as you are a sheep, don't be Lambo, you know, put on this bandana and, and attack all the other sheep. Don't be that. But at the same time, be careful, you have to exercise certain things. So he doesn't say blessed is a man who escapes temptation, but he says blessed is a man who endures. If you are being strengthened and matured through this, as you're enduring this, as you're carrying on the pack of this, this trial and you're walking with it, I want you to understand that, that, that God is truly trying to do a deeper and deeper work. And so we see here that when it comes to these areas of, of, of the trials, he does say, blesses a man who endures temptations. Blesses a man who endures trials. You have to understand that there are going to be some trials as a Christian. Not all, but there are going to be some. There are going to be some trials that are not going to be resolved on this side of heaven. I hate to break the news to you, but that's just the reality. Blessed is the man who endures it. There may be certain trials that God's going to say, you are going to walk this trial until I take you home. And so, so keep in mind that there are going to be times where God is going to say, your ministry to bring glory to me is going to be enduring this trial until I take you home. And, and I, I hate to tell you that what he says about that man or that woman is this. In verse 12, he says, blessed is that man. <laughs> oh, how happy is that man. Because you get to heaven spiritually buff. You get to heaven just, just look at me. I'm just, and, and And he says, when you endure it. So keep in mind that there are some trials that God is going to say, I'm going to use this as a temporary strengthening, a temporary thing, but there's going to be others that your ministry to bring me glory is going to be to walk this trial out for the rest of your life. 
And you're going to do it faithfully. David, when he sinned, Nathan the prophet would come to him and say, David, the sword is never going to leave your house. He made that statement. You're never, never going to be without the consequences of the sin. And he was right. He was right. I mean, think about what, what, what happened with David. That when we take a look at these next couple verses where it says in verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. God is warning that what's going to happen is you have these desires, they draw you away, and that produces death. You have these desires, and you have this deception to think, oh, it's all going to be okay, and you can walk in disobedience, but it's going to come right down to death. Remember when the prophet Nathan, as he says to David, he says, the sword will never leave your house. Think about David for a second. If he would have understood... If God would have gave David just a glimpse that here it was, this season where king should have been out to war. And David is relaxing on, on his rooftop. When he looked at the woman, if God would have opened up his eyes to say, David, what's going to happen if you continue on this road is going to be this. That you are going to have an affair with this woman and she's going to become pregnant. You're going to try to hide it. And then you're going to murder her husband, Uriah, along with other innocent Israelites. And then because of that sin, your son Amnon is going to die. Your son Absalom is going to die. You're going to be chased out of the kingdom. Your, your, your daughter-in-law is going to be, or your, your, your daughter is going to be raped. I mean, think about all the things that happened. The sword not leaving David's house. Look at it. Death. It brought forth death. Both his sons died. If David would have had a little bit of clue, he would have done what? <laughs> I'm going back in the house. I'm going right back in the house. And then when I get in the house, I'm going to dress up for battle. And I'm going to go to war because I'm going to lose this battle. And, and what happens is this. When you endure temptation, sometimes you're never going to let it go. It's going to constantly be there. And there are going to be certain, like, like David, the sword will never leave your house. And he had to bear it until he died. And, and it was just the reality of what was going on with him. But sometimes, verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptations. And I'm just here to tell you that the term is, oh, how happy. It's the same as the, the Lord would use in his Beatitudes. But he says, blessed is the one who endures temptations for when he has been approved, in other words, when the work that this temptation is supposed to do has become successful. That would be a better translation. When he has been approved, when he has become successful, when God has done what he needed this trial to do, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He's going to receive the crown. We get life, which God has promised, as, as we follow him, as we love him. And so we begin to see that this is what these 
outward promises do to us. Now comes the question. What happens when going through these outward trials bring a response on the inward? And now we have inward trials. See, when you have an outward, it's one thing to say, I'm going through it, I'm going through it. But what happens when inwardly, now I'm in turmoil because of these things. Now I have an inward trial because of an outward trial. What do I do now? And that's what he does. He shifts from the outward, the things you fall into, which he, he made that statement. And so we understand that, that we can fall, verse 2, my brother and Connell Joy, when you fall into various trials. And now he moves it to now you're not falling, now you're inward. This isn't the thing you have no control over. This is the thing that is only yours. And you have absolutely no one to blame at all except you. Because notice what he says in verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. Do you understand? You can't say it's not me. No, it is you. These are your desires. This is your problem. You can't blame anyone else. These are your own desires. So as this outward now comes to this point of the inward, he now says, now let no one say, this is now dealing with these inward trials or my responses to these inward trials. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So God himself doesn't tempt anyone. What God does do is this, that he does allow them to be sometimes put in a place where the inward trials are activated. But keep in mind that that's not always the case. So put it this way, that you could actually be, um, you know, walking down the street and all of a sudden you walk past a bar and you're thinking, oh my goodness, it is such a hot day today. As I'm walking past, so I could really, really use a cold beer. And if you've struggled with that and you realize that maybe you're one of these people, I can't do that. I can't drink a cold beer because I'll drink another one, another one, another one, and I just have to say no. It's like I walk past the bar and I think I could really use a cold, I got to go to 7-Eleven and get a cold soda, <laughs> get a cold bottle of water. I got to do that. And so there's, there's sometimes that, that, you know, God allows us to be at a place where something's going to come to our mind. But you have to understand that, that the desires are in us. Not always is there going to be an outside source to do that. Keep in mind that I've had um, friends, brothers, dear, dear friends, that they've struggled with sin. And some of these brothers thought, if I can only get to a place where the sin isn't going to be manifested outwardly. And I've had brothers, true brothers in the Lord, that have gone to Bible college said, I'm just going to go to Bible college, and, and there I won't have that struggle. Well, guess what? 
They went to Bible college and they still struggled with that sin. And to be honest with you, there, there wasn't a bar at the Bible college. There, there, there wasn't, you know, stuff in the Bible college to cause them to drip. But while they were in there, the desire was still in them and they were still struggling with it. But now they were going through Bible college and they were learning incredible things about God, writing out papers while they were still struggling with their sin and getting A's on the paper and thinking, oh, God is blessing me. He's teaching me. And yet the whole time they're still struggling with sin. The greatest danger were the, the brothers that I had that struggled with sexual immorality. And here they were in Bible college. If I only can get there, I won't. Oh, it follow them right in there. And, and there, was, there was nothing in the Bible college. They didn't have posters, you know, of women in bikinis, but they still struggled with it. But they were thinking now, oh, my goodness, here I'm, I'm getting these great grades. I'm learning about God, and maybe he's okay with this. I constantly repent. But you have never dealt with the sin. And then the sad thing is they graduated from Bible college and they said, oh, if I could only get inside a church, inside ministry, and if I could only grow in that. And they were hired in churches and they still struggled with their sin. And this is what James is saying. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, because God cannot tempt. God doesn't tempt us. For God cannot be tempted by evil. We know that through Jesus Christ. He, he can, he can be, have a temptation, but he's never drawn into it. He knows what he's doing. He's living for God. And nor does he himself tempt anyone. He doesn't, he doesn't lead you to a path that will, will cause you to stumble the enemy might lead you to a path that causes you to stumble. In your own head, in your own heart, you're already, you know, with the sin nature, tempted to stumble. And so the world will cause you to stumble. The enemy will cause you, your own flesh will cause you to stumble. God isn't going to cause you to stumble. He's not going to lead you to a place of stumbling. He's going to know that you can fall into it. But James is very clear to say, let no one, let no one, and believe it or not, that's another imperative. Let no one say, ever say it and say it and say it and say it. Too many times people say, God is doing this, God is doing this. Now be careful. It's, it could be your flesh. It could be the enemy. It could be the world. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he himself tempt anyone. Then he says in verse 14 and 15, but each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire is, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. And this is what we kind of talked about there with David. Each one is tempted, verse 14, when he is drawn away by his own desires. These desires that you have in yourself draw you away. And that's what it says in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. In other words, you have desires, and then they draw you away. Verse 15, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when it's full grown, it brings forth death. Now, what does it mean that each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires? Throughout Scripture, 
I want to give you one passage. It's found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and 18. 16 through 18, but it makes this statement. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit lusts against, or the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So you can be led by God to just grow and be strengthened and mature. And that's why he says each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. It's something that's within you. It's something that's already there. And keep in mind that there's so many times when you have these desires or the desires are, are kind of shown you, or oh, you could have this and you could have this and you can have this, that there's a deception that says what? I could really benefit from this. And the thing is, is that sin is pleasurable for a season. So you could benefit on a short term, but understand you don't want to have to pay the interest. You just don't want to. The interest is going to come, and he's going to come collecting, and you don't want to be, you're not going to be able to pay that. But so often, the enemy is always saying, what, but you can have this, you can have this, you can have this. It's okay. It's all right to have this. It's okay to have this. And, and it's a lie. It's a deception. Now, we do realize, and I want to just jump ahead for just a second. We'll be backing up and continuing the, the study in verses 14 and 15. But in verse 17, it says, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above. Why am I camping in verse 17 before I finish? Because so often the enemy says, you can have this, and it's okay. And we realize that, oh, no, every good and every perfect gift is from above, not from the enemy. But the enemy wants us to believe his lies. And it makes a statement here, and I want you to focus on this for just a second, because in verse 14, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. We do have desires. Every one of us have desires. And those desires, I believe... You know, they, they do come from God. There are certain desires that are, are good and right, and God gives us those desires. But those desires that he gives to us need to be worked out in his will and according to his word so that he's glorified. Let me give you a couple examples. God gives to men and women a desire for physical intimacy. And as husband and wife, it's an amazing thing to have physical intimacy. I mean, you think about how if there wasn't intimacy in marriage, that in the book of Genesis, God created Adam and Eve, and that's the end of the chapter. I mean, now you're done. If he didn't know his wife, if he didn't have a desire to know his wife, the end of the book, we have two chapters. God created a man and a woman, and there they are. One side of the world and the other side of the world. Intimacy is a beautiful thing, and God gives to us a desire for intimacy. Yet, 
when you take that desire for intimacy outside of the will of God and outside of the word of God, it becomes what? It becomes sin. And then, then it becomes death. We're, we're deceived in thinking the enemy says, oh, you can, you can express yourself or, or you, can, you can bring pleasure to yourself and it's okay. And God says, no, it's not. It is not okay. Yeah, you have a desire, but it should only be fulfilled and wait till I give you marriage, then fulfill it in that marriage and only in that context. God also says that six days I want you to work and on the seventh day I want you to rest. Resting is an amazing thing. But let's just say, Lord, I want to rest for seven days. <laughs> seven days. Or I'll rest for six and I'll work one. Well, that's laziness. Do you understand that there's a desire that we should have that in the will of God, in the word of God, it's good. A desire to eat is a great thing. But a desire to eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat, not such a good thing. You become a glutton. So understand that God does give us certain desires. And, and what happens is sin is when we try to satisfy these desires outside of the will of God. And there's other desires that we have that aren't God-given either. I mean, there's, there's people have a desire for power. They have a desire you know, for money. They have a desire for all kinds of things. They have a desire for, for sin. There's all kinds of desires that people have that aren't God-given too. It's just flesh nature. They have a desire to, you know worship idols. There's all kinds of things people have. But he does make a statement in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. Now I do want you to again look at verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. When God says, this is my gift to you, take a day and rest. Then take that day and rest. When God says, I want you to be able to express physical intimacy in, in, the, in the marriage ministry, then express that in the marriage ministry. When God says, I want you to, you know, partake of this food and, and do this to my glory, then, then partake of that food and do it to his glory. Do you understand that these are good things because it's from God? But the enemy will say, you can twist it, you can turn it, you can manipulate it to be something other than what God declares, and it will benefit you. You will be so happy. Like, well, yeah, for a moment, for a moment. I mean, you think about it, after you eat the fourth burger, you're like, I could have probably stopped at two or three or one. But you, you realize I, I didn't have to go there. Pleasure, it, it's for a moment, but at the end, then there's that regret. And this is what he says in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires. Now, you have desires, some are God-given, some that are not God-given. And he says, but when desire has conceived. So it makes a statement that you're drawn away when you're by your own desires and enticed. That term, drawn away, enticed, um, has, according to some commentators, a connotation of putting bait on a hook. In other words, that you have a, a hook and you put it in through a fish or a frog or something else or a leech, and all of a sudden you're dragging it, you know, trolling it through the water, and a fish sees, ooh, I see it moving, and the fish goes, chomp. 
Now, he's getting the bait, but he's also getting a hook. And this is what the enemy does. He's just trolling it along, trolling along. Oh, that looks good. You go chomp its desire, and what you realize, the enemy has a hook that now gets you and starts taking you where you don't want to go. And that's what is such a blessing when it comes to this whole area of, of looking to see what God desires for us and having the desires. When God gives you a desire, it becomes a servant to you. When the enemy gives you desire or you take that desire outside of God's will, it becomes the master of you. Make a note of that. When you walk the desire in the way that God says, it's a servant to you. It blesses you. You take the one day off, it's a joy. As, as a married couple, you come together in intimacy and there's a joy. There's all these things that, that these desires become a servant. But you take it outside of the word of God and then it becomes a master. It controls you. It's not just simply something that, that you do that benefits you. And so we see here that each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Now he's moving from this analogy as far as this fishing analogy where something's on a hook to now a giving birth. It says when desire is conceived. And, and I think a good question that is brought up is, is who's the father? So when you have conception... Unless you're Mary, there's a father. Well, the Holy Spirit in her case, but, but there's a father. When, when desire is conceived, who, who's the father of this? It, it, it's, it's birthing in me. Who's the father? And, and what he's saying is this desire that was hooking me, now controlling me, that desire wasn't of God. God wasn't the father of this desire. God wasn't the one who manipulated and, and, and twisted this desire. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. I think it's important to make a note here that this is what God begins to try to see. That you have a desire, and then that desire becomes an action of your will. You say... Not only is it in my mind, but now I'm going to choose to act on it. And that's what it says here. When desire has conceived, it's now so fully in your mind, it gives birth to sin. In other words, I now act on that desire. Now, as I continue to act on that desire, it brings forth death. If I live a life of sin and say God's going to bless my sin... We already learned as we went through Micah that what? God's not going to look and say, wow, should I just be happy with unjust weights? Should I just wink at him and say, oh, it's okay. You can have unjust weights. No, God says sin is sin. Don't, don't look to me as if I'm saying it's unfair. It, it's, it's wrong. I'm not going to wink at this kind of stuff. So when you're in sin, I'm going to tell you it's sin. And that's why it says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. When you have these things that are coming over you and it becomes a practice, don't be deceived. In verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above. There are things that God gives to you and desires that you can do, but they must be in accordance to the word of God. They can't be outside of it. 
You can't make your own rules. And to say, no, you don't understand, lol, that we were married under the moon when we were walking on the beach. And yeah, I don't need a license from the state. I don't have to have you do this marriage thing. We were married under the moon. We committed ourselves to each other so so we can do this. Oh, no, you can't. We adhere to the laws of the land. The law says you're not married until you have a marriage certificate and you, you, you are there before a judge or before a pastor. Then you're married. But until then, you can have all the desires you want. doesn't make you so. But every good and perfect gift is from above. It has to be according to God's ways. And it comes down from the Father of lights. In other words, you don't have to hide it. See, you can usually understand one of two things. Now, we did learn in Micah that there are some people who are so in sin that they do it with both hands. You can, I'm open to sin. I, you can, I don't have to hide anything. Both of my hands. Not like I'm trying to say I'm, you know, doing good and I'm trying to deceive you behind my back. I'm doing bad and I don't care that you know it. There are those kind of people. But usually if you're a Christian, there are certain things that you don't brag about. Your sin. The world brags about its sin. Christians, we don't. We hide that. And that's why it says here that it comes down from the Father of lights. You understand? Heaven comes and says, let this gift shine. Do your things in such a way that when people see your life, they glorify your Father in heaven. And it comes down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. In other words, you can't take God's word and manipulate it to be something else that works for you. It has to simply be what it is. And then it says in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He calls us the first fruits. In other words, the very best of the gleanings. Like when you go into a grape um, vineyard for the first time, the very grapes you pick out are the big, bulky, juicy ones, the first grapes. The first olives you do, you press them, you have that virgin olive oil, you get the big ones. He says, you're, you're this kind of first fruits, the first ones I gather, the ones that I'm proud of, the ones that will bless. And he says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. See, as we walk this word of truth, that we can be this, this first fruits of his creatures, that people can see what we are and realize this is of God. And then he says in verse 19, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Hear what it is that God is saying. Be very slow with, with how you try to question what it is that God's word is doing. And be careful that you don't get angry with God because his word disagrees with what you want to do. And I think it's important to be swift to hear and slow to speak. There's, there's a, a, I don't know who first said it. Some commentators declare it. But they make a statement that God has given us two ears and one mouth. And I'm thinking that's pretty good because it's twice as important to hear than to speak. And I thought, that's pretty good. And it's kind of the same thing here. He says, listen, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and of course, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When you get upset with God and you say, this is the way that it should be, it's no, not the way it is. 
God said what it said, and he's just going to stay there. So he says in verse 21, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and the overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Allow your faith, the things that you do, to come in line with the word of God. Put the other things aside. And then he says in verse 22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. There are some people who basically just want to say, the religion that I have is what I've heard and what I'm telling you it is, but it's not really what I'm walking. And I think it's important to become a doer of the word, not a hearer only. I want to read to you just one passage from the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10. Ezra declares this, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach the statues and ordinances in Israel. He wanted to check out the law. He wanted to walk it. And after he walked it, he says, now I'm going to teach it. See, there's some people who want to teach it, want to be the, 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 the hearers, and they want to deceive themselves, but they don't want to actually do what God's word says. And he says in verse 23, if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in the mirror, for he observes himself and goes away immediately forgets what kind of man he was. For he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. It's interesting as he goes through, he talks about a man who's a hearer and not a doer, but he's like a man who observes his natural face in the mirror. And he observes himself, he goes away, and immediately he forgets what kind of man he was. There are some people who try to make the Bible into multi-gendered. In other words, when he calls them brother and he means sisters as well. I don't think this is a woman who sees her face in the mirror. When a woman sees herself in the mirror, she doesn't forget what she sees. A man's like, oh, that wasn't so bad. (laughs) I can go on. I believe it's actually a man. And there's a passage I want you to be aware of in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And what I want to do is this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I want to read to you verse 18. It makes this statement. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. That as we're unveiling our face, we, we see basically the glory of God. And that, that's what we want to be. And, and, and when we observe our face, we should want to see the glory of God, not, not my face, not the natural face. If you're a hearer of the word and not a doer, then you're not going to change. But if you're hearing and you're doing it, you want to fix the things that you need to fix. And so in verse 25, he says, but this he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. And this one will be blessed in what he does. It's important to look at the law and continue in it, walk in it. Let it become a part of your life, become a doer. And when you become a doer, he says, this one is blessed. This one's happy because you have this visible faith. You have this, this I'm walking these things out. In verse 21, 26, he says, if anyone 
among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart. This one's religion is useless. In other words, if your religion is all talk and no walk, he says, if it's not visible faith, he says, to be honest with you, he says, be careful. Because if you're all talk, if you're not bridling your tongue, if it's all talk and no walk, you're deceiving your own heart. You're not deceiving God, but you're deceiving your heart. And if there's no practical, if your faith is not visible, tangible to you and others on the outward, he says the, the religion is basically useless. Well, what's, what's the purpose of, 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 of having this if you're not bringing others into the kingdom, if you're not loving God and loving people in the way that he calls you to? And then he says this in verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. And notice what he says. He's going to do simple, simple, basic, visible things. Visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep oneself unspotted from the world. In other words, visit those who are, remember what we were saying back in verse 9, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Go to the lowly and tell them our inheritance is in heaven. Hang on. God has scattered you here. He's planted you here, but for a reason. And then so you visit those in need, the orphans and the widows and their trouble. And then keep yourself unspotted from the world. In other words, don't go into these areas where you are allowing your desires to be conceived and you act on them and sin and then believe that you can sin and it's still okay with God and then you sin again and again and again and that's why he said you keep yourself unspotted from the world because if you do that it, it, your desires will be for sin and sin will bring forth death and I think it's just a real great warning for us because how often do we look and we say, okay, God, what in the world is going on here? What in the world is going on? And we'll understand. He's saying there's basically three things that we need to know as we look at our world and our lives. That there are going to be outward trials. And then how you look and respond to them will become an inward trial. But there's a way to have victory over both of those trials. And that's walk the word of God. Allow it to become life and, and living in your heart. And when that begins to happen, then God is glorified and you are blessed. Oh, how happy is the man. Amen? Well, Father, we do thank you for this word. It's not overly complicated. He just walks us through some basics. Basics of just what trials are. These basics of which the trials of those 12 tribes who were scattered just wanting to show them, God sowed you here. God planted you here. And God is wise in what he's doing. And if you trust in him, if you wait on him, that he will allow your life to bear fruit. Oh, God, do you be the glory. And so, Lord, we are asking that you would continue to teach us your word. Teach us your heart as you draw us into really what the mind and the heart of James is and what he's wanting to tell these people that are just crying out to you, Lord. And the confidence, the confidence comes as we walk. Because then we have evidences, Lord. The confidence comes as we love. 
And we realize, Lord, that that has always, always, always been your heart. We want to fulfill the royal law according to Scripture. And that's simply just love our neighbor as ourself. Help us love people, Lord. Help us to love you. And these hang all the commandments. So draw us to that end, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name and all the saints of God said, Amen.